All right, so we're going to do things a little bit different tonight. Like I said, um, I have not prepared like a manuscript per se. You know, a lot of times when I'm preparing my messages, I'll like write out what I'm going to say and I'll go through this whole message. So I make no promises as to what the feeling of tonight is going to be, if it's going to feel like a message or more like a Bible study or some kind of discussion back and forth. I don't really know. Um, there's a few reasons for that. One, uh, we are about to dive into 1 Thessalonians 4, and I didn't want to kick off into that part of the message of the series and then take a week off to do our, our thing next week about the outreach and, the, and discussion panels and stuff like that. I just didn't want to like take a break in the middle of that. So that's one reason. Two, um, I thought it would be high time to talk about worship. Um, we haven't yet. It's a big passion of mine as the worship pastor of the church. And it's something that has defined my life. And I think it's something that's important for you to understand. Um, and it has to do with one of our C's, right? So we have the three C's that we focus on here, uh, being centered on Christ, committed to discipleship, and confident in God's word. And worshiping is being centered on Christ. It is centering our lives. It's a way that we focus. It's a way that we give praise. It's a, it's a way that we live life with Christ is by worshiping. So... It's really important. As I'm going through this, I'm going to be going to some different scriptures. Like I said, um, I'm just going through things that I want to talk about. And so if you have any questions in the moment, you are more than welcome to um, ask them. And then like little breaks, maybe I'll ask if you have questions. But you're definitely uh, allowed to bring some, bring some up at the end as well. And we can have a discussion um, and, and go through that. So like I said, worship is important to me give you a little bit about my testimony. Um, worship is how God chose to call me to himself. Um, I was an atheist at the age of 17. I stepped foot in the church to watch a friend get baptized, and I was amazed at the people that were worshiping, right? They were singing, and they were happy and joyful. Some of them were teary-eyed. Some of them were um, just expressing this love that I'm like, how can you possibly feel this way about something that doesn't exist, right? And it was being in that culture of worship that caused me to start going back every week and asking questions to the pastor. And two or three months later, um, before I knew it, I came to Christ. And it all started with worship for me, right? Um, it spoke to me. It's what allowed me to see God and allowed me to see how God interacts in people's lives um, because it is a meaningful part of our relationship with the Lord. So that's why I want to talk about it, because um, it is something that should affect each one of us. Because we are, we are all created for a purpose. Every single one of us that's here tonight has a purpose on this earth. And that purpose is actually the same thing. While we might have different careers, different emphasis, different minds, different ways that we do things, we all have the exact same purpose in life. And that purpose is to glorify God. It says in Genesis, at the very beginning, that God created man in his image, meaning we are image bearers. We are ones that reflect who God is. We shine on God. We show who God is by who we are. It, it is in us. But to get even more specific than that, it's not just that we are image bearers, it's that we were, uh, we were created specifically to bring God 
glory. And it says that in Isaiah 43. Like, there's a few of them. I'm just going to read them to you real quick. Isaiah is talking on behalf of God. He's saying, this is what God has to say to you people. And Isaiah, in 43, verse 6, says, I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. So bring everybody. Bring everybody, all the people that God has created. Bring all of them. Everyone who's called by my name, whom I have created, whom I, uh, who I have created for my glory, and who I have formed and made. So God says we're made for His glory. But then, just a few verses later, He says that the wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the deserts, to give drink to my chosen people. That's you. God's chosen people is the church through Israel. Those that know Christ are God's chosen people. And he says, I give drink to my chosen people, the people who I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. So what God says about you is that he formed you for him. He formed you to give him praise. That is your purpose in life. And it is a, it's a magnificent purpose to have. It's one that we can forget often, but it is our purpose. Much like, much like a flashlight has a purpose. Right? I don't have an actual flashlight, but I do have a phone, so I'll use this. This flashlight has a purpose. And we are like the flashlight, right? But we don't have an off switch. So let's pretend that this flashlight doesn't have an off switch, right? Because you can't turn off the purpose that something was made for. You can't turn off our purpose. God made us for a reason. We can't stop what God has done. So your light is always shining. It's always shining on something. What is it shining on? The purpose is that it would shine on the Lord, right? But far too often... We take this light and we try to shine it on other things that are important to us. Anything that might satisfy our desire. Anything that might satisfy what makes us feel good. But the reality is we have one thing to shine our light on. And that's God. And that's what worship is. Describing worth to God. It's shining upon God. It's giving to him what he deserves. And as we're going into this, I wanted to just start out with that general purpose statement. That's why it matters to all of us. That's why some of the topics I'm about to get into are so important to people. Because when we start talking about worship and how people worship, we start talking about how people fulfill their purpose. And it gets very personal very quickly. It can get very personal very quickly. Um, and one last like side statement. I'm using the word worship a lot. We here, especially in America, we have several different terms for worship, right? Um, and as Christians, like, we can say worship, like, whole life. Like, Romans 12.1 talks about, like, your whole life is worship. Right? Your whole, everything you do should be for the glory of God. Uh, in America, we talk about going to worship. So, like, everything that happens in the church service is worship, whether it's communion or baptisms or preaching or singing. Like, all that is worship. But the worship I'm talking about tonight specifically is you giving praise to God, the outpouring of your praise to him. 
for many of us that falls into either singing or prayer or a personal of you or you in the church pouring something out to God. That's the specific type of worship I'm talking about right now. How to actually give God worth and glory and praise, all right? So I did need to say that because it can be a really confusing term. So I talked about purpose. Every single one of us has a purpose, and that is to worship. What I want to talk about next is how particular God is about that worship. See, God is very particular about the worship he is to receive. He always has been. He always will be. If you want to see just how particular he is, I encourage you to open to Exodus 25, if you have your Bible on you. We're just going to use this as an example. So God is very particular about the way that he wants to be worshipped. And he's been like that since the beginning of working with his people. Exodus 25, and for the next five or six chapters, God talks about all of the things that he wants the people of Israel to do to worship him. If you guys don't know what the Ark of the Covenant was, it was a symbol for the presence of God being among his people, is where God dwelled for a while. It was brought into the tabernacle, which was like the temporary temple that God's people worshipped in. And starting, and I'm not going to read all these verses, but starting in chapter 25, he begins, the Lord begins saying this to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, fine twine linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acai wood, oils for lamps, spices for the anointing, fragrant incense, onyx stones, stones for setting. And it goes on and he just lists thing after thing after thing that is acceptable for him in his worship. And that's just what people are going to bring to him. He keeps on going, like, you're going to make me a mercy seat. That needs to be made out of gold. It needs to be two cubits and a half in its length. It needs to be a cubit and a half in its width. Um, You're going to make two cherubims, and they need to look like this, and their wings need to face this way, and they need to be this big, and they need to sit in just this way. And he keeps on going, you're going to put that on a wood that's, or on a table that's made out of this specific wood. And then you're going to put it in this specific spot. And then a couple chapters later, he's like, oh, by the way, I want these specific people to lead you in worship. I want these specific people to be the priests. And they need to wear these types of robes. And they have to be this color. And they have to be made out of these things. And I only accept these kind of animals for sacrifices. And you can only worship me on these days. And it's like, it's six chapters of just specifics of what God wants in worship. So one of the things we should learn from that is that God cares very much about how we worship him. He always has, and it hasn't changed. And it's something that can really make people passionate. I was talking to leaders before uh, we got together tonight, and uh, many of you probably don't know this term, but uh, in church staff world and in church 
you know, culture at large, we talk about the worship wars. Does anybody know what I'm talking about when I say the worship wars? So the worship wars are this sort of defining period in the early 2000s where churches began splitting. And what were they splitting over? They were splitting over guitars being put into the worship center, into drums being put on stage. They were splitting into two radically different camps, one that was saying that the most God-glorifying way to worship was with the organ or the piano and four-part harmony, soprano, alto, tenor, bass, and it had to be this way with this type of music, and the words had to be this old. And then there was this new camp that was like, nah, man, like, you need to be able to have, like, guitars and cymbals and drums, and it needs to be, like, one part with two harmonies. And you had this church divide, and I'm not making light out of it. Like, this, this argument broke families up. It demolished churches. There are churches that are founded today that planted simply because they thought they had the answer to this question. There are people that don't talk to their family members because how they were hurt over this subject. It's a very serious statement because why is it so important to people? Because we're starting to mess with the purpose they were created and the particulars that they think God has for worship. So you can see that it's pretty important, and I hope that as I'm talking about this, the question you're asking is, so what does God want in worship? Because spoiler alert, I'll tell you, it's not a musical preference. There is no musical preference listed in Scripture. Think about the amount of things that I listed in five or six chapters as to what God wanted. Not a single one of them was how the music was to sound. Not a single one of them was how it was sung, how quiet, how loud, how fast, how slow, nothing. The book of Psalms, essentially 150-some songs or poems to the Lord, beautiful lyrics, beautiful stanzas that describe who the Lord is and what it means to be in relationship with him. Not a single musical note recorded from that. If God wanted to record it, he would have. But he didn't. He even records, uh, there's this term called selah. That means like instrumental break or a time to reflect. Like he even records when he wanted people to take a break and reflect and to pause. But he didn't say what instrument was playing during that. He talks about instruments playing. He talks about people singing. But he doesn't say what kind. And just to further drive that point home, the people, the Jewish people, I don't know if any of you have ever managed to be able to go to like a Jewish synagogue for, for temple, for service. Um, they all sing psalms, but yet there is no prescribed way in which to sing them. It's sort of cool because like different tribes came up with their own ways to sing certain psalms. And so when you hear something, you can sort of tell what tribe someone might have been from based on how they were singing it's actually a really beautiful thing, and the diversity of it shows the life of those people, even though it's the same truth. So what I'm getting at is when I, when I say worship to you guys, I'm not talking about the fact that I lead a five-piece band on the weekends, and there are people that are playing guitars and singing, and I'm not talking about those that listen to hymns and, 
and sing in four-part harmony with books in front of them. I'm not talking about either one of those. But what I am talking about when I say worship is exactly what God wants. And so we're going to spend the rest of our time in John 4, 23 and 24. John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. Because this is going to answer the question for us. This is what God wants in worship. John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24 are one of the only passages in all of Scripture that actually teaches about worship. You can go to tons of examples of people worshiping in Scripture. You can go to tons of examples of worship itself. But it is very rare to find a passage where someone's actually teaching on worship itself what it is. But this is what we see. In the entire New Testament, this is the only one, and this is Jesus himself talking about what worship is. And these are the particulars that God has for his people. These are the things he wants. So let's dive into it. We're going to try to break it down. Um, It's going to take a little bit just because it has a whole bunch of context of the Gospel of John in it, but it's important to understand. So let me give you some context of what's going on. John chapter 4 is Jesus traveling through Samaria, which already is a no-no for Jews. Okay? Jews don't travel to Samaria. Why? Because in that time, there was extreme racism happening between the Jews and the Samaritans. There was a cultural divide over worship. The Samaritans and the Jews argued about where and how to worship. What mountain that they were to worship on, what temple that they were to be in, who was to do the worshiping. That's what they argued over. So much so that it caused this huge divide between the Jews and the Samaritans. To where they didn't even talk to, like Jews would literally, if they were going up to Jerusalem, uh, which is technically south, but get into that another time. When they were going up to Jerusalem, they would travel around Samaria in order to get to it. They wouldn't even step foot into a place where a Samaritan might live. And yet Jesus is traveling to Samaria to have this conversation about worship. And he meets this woman at a well. And as he meets this woman at the well, he says, give me a drink. And she's like, you're a Jew. Why are you asking me to give you a drink? And he says, woman, if you knew who was talking to you, you would be asking for water that would never run dry. You'd be asking for water that you would never be thirsty again. And she responds to him and says, I want that water. Can you give me that water? And that's where we see the beginning of this conversation that we're about to read. So she asked for this water, and in verse 16, I'd like to start there. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you uh, now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. I'm going to stop right there real quick. A lot of pastors will preach this subject and say that she was trying to change the subject. They will look at this and be like, Ah, she was super uncomfortable that he was calling her out on her adultery. And uh, man, she was just trying to quick change the subject as quick as possible. That might be true. I don't think that's the context of what's going on here. You see, the Jews and the Samaritans were so 
uh, caught up in what worship was and what divided them, that the minute he spoke to her in a way that revealed to her that he had some kind of authority and power of God, she asked the most burning question of the day to a man that she thought might be able to answer it. That was more important to her than what he had just said about her. Right? She's like, I, I don't have a husband. He's like, yeah, you're right. You got like five of them. And she's like, I have a question for you. This is burning in me. It's divided all of our people for years. Can we talk about this? And so she says, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And then she says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. That's the argument I was talking about. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. So what he's just telling her is that the Jews are God's chosen people. The Samaritans haven't been. But what he's saying is all that's not going to matter in a little bit of time. None of that is going to matter soon. Like, yes, we know who we're worshiping. You don't. But at this point, all that's, that's going away. So that's what he's saying. And then we're getting into these verses right here. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Let's take that like phrase by phrase. The hour is coming and is now here. If, if that was true in Jesus' time, it's true in our time. It didn't, it didn't just undo itself. If the time was there for Jesus, it is still that time. So this applies to us now. For us, this means the time is here, currently, right now, when true worshipers, if Jesus is saying that there are true worshipers, what's the opposite implication? That there's false worshipers, right? If someone says something's true, and that this is a true worshiper right here is identifying it, that is therefore identifying that there are also false worshipers. Meaning, there are those in our lives that are either worshiping truly how God wants and desires, or worshiping falsely. Those exist in our culture and in our world. I want to be a true worshiper, personally. When I read that, that's what I want to be. So that's what I want to learn from this. Is how can I be one of those true worshipers like God has? When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. We'll get to those in a minute. And here's like one of my favorite lines. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Seeking is an amazing word. Like God's the creator. He knows everything. He knows where everything is. He puts everything in its place. Scripture says he knows every single hair on your head. And yet he's seeking, he's searching for those that would truly worship him. It's a desire of his to be in a relationship in which people truly give him glory and truly acknowledge who he is and fulfill their purpose. I want to be one of the people God's seeking. So what does that require? What are the two things in there that it says true worshipers need to have? It says they need to worship in spirit and they need to worship in truth. 
And this is the answer right here, guys. When I said that God is very particular about his worship and who worships him, this is his particular now. He's looking for worshipers in spirit and worshipers in truth. Anybody know what that means right off the top of your head? Sort of confusing, right? Like it's, that's sort of vague, I feel like, to worship in spirit and worship in truth. But luckily, if we read through the context, it's actually not that vague. And it actually has a lot of, thanks a lot, Regent, for dropping your Bible. Appreciate it. <laughs> There's actually a lot of different uh, nuance and meaning to it, and I'd love to just break them down as, as much as we can in this little bit of time. So he's looking for people to worship him in spirit. Let's, uh, verse 24 gives us the context of this. It says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So we, we get to see it right there. So what does it mean to worship God in spirit? Well, the first implication is that God is spirit, and we have to worship in spirit. So that already implies that whatever our worship is, it is more than something just physical. It is more than something of just where you are, how you're located, how you posture yourself. There is something deeper going on than just you raising your hands or just you opening your mouth or just you showing up to church on Sunday morning. If God is spirit and we have to worship him in spirit, it's something that can't just be physically seen. One of my uh, pastors that discipled me used to tell me that to say God is spirit and we have to worship in spirit is like saying that worship is all that we are trying to engage with all that God is. It's our spirit, who we are, and the spirit in us trying to engage with God in a way that he wants to be engaged. So one thing we can tell by worshiping spirit, it's not just physical. It's not just physical, and he even tells her that, right? He says, like, it's not going to matter if you worship in Jerusalem. It's not going to matter if you worship on a mountain. Like, that hour is coming when it doesn't matter at all where you worship because your physical location doesn't matter anymore. The other implication ties right in with truth, and that's why these are together. Spirit and truth go together in this one way. In the Gospel of John, Jesus is called the truth. And in 1 John, I talked about this last week just a little bit, in 1 John, Jesus is also called the truth. The truth is a way of describing Jesus that John used a lot. Many of you might know the, the verse, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the truth. And when Jesus says that you have to worship God in spirit and in truth, what he's saying is you can't worship God without Jesus. The only true worshipers are those that know Christ. The only true worshipers are those that have the spirit in them. See, when you, when you become saved, when you cross over from death to life, when you accept Christ as your Savior, you are indwelled with the Holy Spirit. 
you have the Spirit of God living in you. And that is the qualification to be able to worship God, is that you are worshiping in spirit because you have the Holy Spirit, and in truth because you know the truth. You know who Jesus Christ is. And then there's one other truth in here. You'd have to read the context to get to it, but if you were to go back and read chapter 4, which I encourage you guys to do, there's one other time Jesus uses the word truth. We read it, actually. He calls a woman out on being an adulterer, having five husbands. And then he says to her, what you say to me is true. Oh, also, true worshipers worship in spirit and truth. Let's not miss the immediate context. That there is a real sense that he just spoke to a woman and called her out on her lies and told her that worshipers actually worship in truth. That requires an honesty. That requires an authenticity to your worship. An authenticity of who you are. Admitting to God your, your faults, your sins, the things that are holding you up. That's coming to God on a passionate level that gets rid of all pretenses and just acknowledges who he has right in front of him, you. All right. So that's spirit and truth. It's a lot. It's very nuanced. It takes a long time to break all these down. And there's more nuance than that. But did you hear anything in that passage where Jesus is talking about worship that says anything about music? Did you hear anything that talks about your preference? Did you hear anything that talks about how you were raised or what you prefer? No. And it's funny how every single time God talks about worship, that's never mentioned. And so here's the challenge for you guys. One, I hope you're convicted to worship in spirit and truth by knowing Christ. But two, I want to challenge you to see this flaw in yourself. For all of you that, that come here to Coram Deo and you love the worship that we have and you love the contemporary music and it's passionate for you, I challenge you to become the type of disciple that can go to a church that's singing hymns for the entire time and worship just as much. Because that is your litmus test. That is the test on whether you're a true worshiper. Because a true worshiper worships the one true living God and the truths that are being spoken and sung no matter what music is being played. A true worshiper is not inspired and stirred on first by the music and then by whatever happens to be sung. Opposite, right? It's okay to have musical preferences. It's okay to have music that speaks to you more. There's a reason why every movie out there has a different type of soundtrack that brings a different type of emotion and a different type of sense because it speaks to different types of people. Like God created music to be like that, but he didn't create it to cause you to worship or not to worship. That's not what he designed. And vice versa. If you guys prefer the hymns, if you prefer the four-part harmonies, and you can't sit in a place that's singing truth about God and still worship, I challenge you as well. In those worship wars, both sides were wrong. 
When the church made an issue out of something that wasn't an issue, they got divided, they broke up, they hurt the church, and now we're paying the price for it. If we could have stayed unified around what Scripture says about worship, we'd be a lot stronger. And so I want to I challenge you. I, I bet you fall somewhere on that line. Right? For me, a long time it was hard to worship to hymns. Because I didn't know him. I came to Christ at 17 in a contemporary church. I had never even really heard of him besides Amazing Grace. But there's a lot to it. So I know I sort of rambled on. I know I sort of talked a lot. That's my heart on worship. It's just a little bit of it. 